the world of Islam, culture, religion, and politics. I greet you with peace. Assalamu alaikum. My name is Amin Tais. Welcome to the second episode of this podcast entitled The World of Islam, Culture, Religion, and Politics. Today, we will start our journey through the history of Islamic thought. We will begin with a discussion of the pre-Islamic environment. We will discuss both the world of the Near East in late antiquity. This is the name that historians give to the period from about the 2nd to the 7th centuries. And we will of course discuss the world of Arabia on the eve of the rise of the movement of Muhammad. But uh, before that, I would like to say a few words about the way we will take our historical journey. As I mentioned in the first episode, this podcast will take a critical approach in the attempt to understand issues surrounding Islam and Muslims. What does this mean? I use the word critical not in the way we use it in our slang as when we say we criticize someone or something. I use critical in the way academics use it, which means that we will ask relevant questions in our study and evaluation of the topics at hand to better understand them without letting religious beliefs or ideological assumptions keep us from such an evaluation. So my approach will be primarily academic and I will try to be as neutral as possible. For example, I will never tell you that uh, Sunni Muslims are right and Shiites are wrong or vice versa, or that Sufis or Salafis or rationalists are the true Muslims, etc. Uh, And um, however, whenever it's relevant, I will state the various positions, explain them, and put them in their historical context for maximum benefit. I hope that this approach will be useful in our quest to move beyond both the polemics of Islamophobes and the apologetics of many believers. The result that I'm seeking is uh, to allow us enough room to challenge our assumptions and to give us the tools to recognize the uh, silliness, excuse the term, of much of what we hear in uh, the mainstream corporate media, both in the West and in the uh, quote-unquote Muslim world. It is much more important for me to raise questions than to provide answers. Questions create food for thought. Easy answers are often misleading. So I will often raise questions to think about, And when I provide any kind of information, know that it's probably an incomplete picture because of the constraints of this medium that is podcasting. So please challenge yourself to check on what is provided for you here and uh, also dare to learn more about it. And as I said, enjoy the questions and the search. Do not be afraid to move beyond the familiar and the often misleading certainties. We need to become more comfortable with uncertainty, doubt, 
and new ones. Once we think we know it all, we are in fact pronouncing a death sentence on our intellect and uh, on our ability to transcend our limitations. Now I understand that our environment today has shaped people in ways that make them uh, unable to deal with complexity. We have very little patience for nuance. We want fast answers and we want them now. Just like we want fast food and we want it now. Needless to say that this is not healthy for us as individuals and as societies. I hope that as far as the subject of Islam is concerned, we will be able to move beyond these simplistic answers and claims like Islam is peaceful or Islam is violent, Islam respects women or Islam oppresses women, etc. We will quickly realize that there are many Islams or many interpretations of what Islam is and many ways people live their Islam. We will also see how much of what constitutes Islamic orthodoxies in their Sunni, Shiite, and Kharijite versions are human constructions. They are human attempts at making sense of what God's will is through reading the sacred texts and relating them to the circumstances, needs, and interests of the interpretive community. This is extremely important. We will also see that social actors, that is human beings in society, play a major role in shaping a religious tradition. And they do it under particular social, cultural, economic, and political circumstances. All of which uh, set the limits of what can be thought and practiced in this or that place or at this or that time. And this last point is a good segue for us to our topic of the day, the pre-Islamic environment of Arabia and the larger Near East in late antiquity. Now, Muslims will surely uh, create a significant change in the world around them, but they will do so in a dialectical relation, uh, in a dialogue with, if you want, with the existing systems, ideas, uh, modes of living, institutions. Um, in other words, Muslims will create, uh, will create a major civilization, but much of it is built on the remains of the civilizations preceding them. Muslims will define themselves and their religious tradition using many of the tools they will inherit from the empires that the Arabs conquered uh, shortly after Muhammad. It is important to understand that the religion of Islam and Islamic thought would not have developed in the way they did without the influence of the sophisticated Greek, Persian, and Indian intellectual traditions of late antiquity. We will see this influence in Islamic law, especially in Usul al-Fiqh, or sources of jurisprudence. We will see it in Islamic theology, ilm al-kalam, and we will see it in Islamic mysticism, tasawwuf. We'll get back to all of these in time. For now, let's talk about a little about the Near East. Uh, this is roughly the area we call today the Middle East. 
Uh, and as a caveat here, both terms, Near East and Middle East, are of course coined by Europeans uh, describing the other uh, in geographical terms. So you had the Near East and, and you also had the Far East for places like China and Japan. So let's first consider some general characteristics about this area and also raise a few questions for us to ponder as we go on. Again, we are talking here about Near East in the centuries before Islam, the uh, time called Late Antiquity from about the 2nd to the 7th uh, centuries. Uh, the first characteristic is that uh, there is a rise of an urban mercantile economy which will create particular needs and interests and the question uh, that we can raise here is that how do the religious traditions that come to life in this period participate in responding to these needs and interests related to this is the point that this new socio-economic structure also created significant social inequalities and again, how do the uh, late antique religions deal with this issue? Another point is that there's a rise of large uh, trade networks in the area, which make people much more aware of the other and uh, to seek common ground with them in terms of worldview. Now, to what extent is this connected to the rise of religions with universal claims at this moment of the history of the Near East? Which was not the case before. In earlier periods, in general, each locality had its own gods, its own moral system, etc. Another crucial point is that um, historians argue that the late antique religions that spread and prospered were the ones that uh, were connected to particular empires. For example, for example, Christianity and the Roman Empire, ever since the Emperor Constantine, who dies in uh, 337 of the Common Era. And also, uh, another example is Zoroastrianism with the Sasanian Empire. By the way, the two major empires of the area at the time we're discussing here were the Eastern Roman Empire, also called the Byzantine Empire, with its capital Constantinople, and the Sasanian Empire, uh, which was a, an Iranian Empire, with its capital in Ctesiphon. These two empires were in competition and in constant conflict. Uh, just like all uh, the neighboring empires of pre-modern times. Another important element to remember here is that the Roman Empire was the inheritor of the hugely influential and sophisticated Hellenistic culture. Hellenistic culture is at a basic level the spread of the ancient Greek culture into the larger Near East after the conquests of Alexander the Great who dies in 323 before the Common Era, 323 BCE. 
Historians usually speak of the heyday of Hellenistic culture between the 4th century uh, before the Common Era and the 1st century before the Common Era. Now, let's talk a little about the major religions of this area at this time. Today I will cover Judaism and hopefully in the next episode I will cover Christianity and Zoroastrianism. Judaism um, was known as the religion of the people of Israel. Jews were a significant minority in both the Byzantine Empire and Sassanian Empire, though they fared a lot better under Sassanian rule. As minorities, Jewish communities were present in many areas uh, in the Near East, and this is mainly because of a history of deportation from Palestine that started as far back as the Assyrians in the 8th century uh, before the Common Era, and again in the historically very significant and important Babylonian exile in uh, the year 587 before the Common Era, as well as the events surrounding the destruction of the second uh, Jerusalem temple in uh, the year 70, and finally with the deportation after the Bar Kokhba rebellion against the Roman authorities in the year 132. The uh, largest and most influential Jewish communities uh, were in Mesopotamia, which is modern Iraq, Iran, and uh, the Jewish community of Mesopotamia played a major role in the development of Rabbinic Judaism that will become the dominant form of Judaism until the modern period. In Mesopotamia, the Jewish community was led uh, politically by the Exilarch. Uh, the Exilarch came from a family that uh, traced its ancestry, its lineage to King David, and he was uh, the representative of the Jewish community before the Sasanian Emperor. But the religious leadership of the community was in the hands of the rabbis. The uh, religious authority of the rabbis started uh, growing slowly after the destruction of the Second Temple probably because they presented the Jewish uh, community with a satisfying way to survive despite the loss of the temple. Much of Jewish ritual and religious life had been centered around uh, the temple and the temple sacrifices and the role of the high priest was fundamental to this process. The destruction of the temple by the Roman authorities in the year 70 was nothing short of a major disaster for the Jewish community. Its very identity and even survival was threatened. The rabbinical sages would slowly become important figures in uh, defining what it means to be Jewish in this post-temple world. The rabbis shifted the emphasis of Jewish practice from the temple to the Torah, the Word of God, and to the practice of the commandments, the mitzvot. The rabbis become the sophisticated interpreters of Jewish law, the halakha. More importantly, the rabbis 
uh, authority stems from their argument that they are the inheritors of what they termed the oral Torah. We know what the written Torah is. It's the uh, Jewish holy book uh, that Moses is uh, supposed to have received from God at Sinai. And uh, Torah is also used for the totality of the Jewish uh, canon of scriptures, the Tanakh, with its three parts, the uh, Torah, the law, Nevi'im, the books of the prophets, and Ketuvim, the writings, uh, books like Psalms, Proverbs, Job, etc. So what is oral Torah then? The rabbis argued that in addition to the written Torah, Moses also received some other teachings from God and that he passed them down in oral form to the sages of the community and uh, they continued to be passed down generation after generation in the same manner that is orally. Uh, and the rabbis are in that line of sages receiving the oral Torah. For the rabbis, the oral Torah is as important as the written Torah. Of course, the claims of the rabbis would not go unchallenged. Other groups would reject this concept of oral Torah. For instance, uh, later, during the Islamic period, a Jewish interpretive community known as the Karaites will argue that there is only one revelation from God, and that is the written Torah. But ultimately, the rabbis and their methods of interpretation would come to dominate the religious leadership of uh, Jewish communities. And the rabbis produced important compilation like the Mishnah, in which the oral teachings would be uh, collected um, by the very central figure of uh, Rabbi uh, Judah, the patriarch. This is around the year 200. Uh, but for the period, that, the period that interests us here, the rabbis produced the Talmuds, which are uh, at a basic level commentaries on the tracts of the Mishnah and uh, related compilations like the Tosefta. And uh, there are two Talmuds, the Jerusalem Talmud, Talmud Yerushalmi, um, but the most important, and the other one, uh, the most important one, uh, most prestigious Talmud is uh, the uh, Babylonian Talmud, Talmud uh, Bavli, in which is recorded a very diverse and uh, sophisticated tradition of interpretation of Jewish law. The Babylonian Talmud is the work of Mesopotamian rabbis. Now, it is important to, to keep all this in mind as we later try to understand the structures, institutions, and ideas in which, uh, around which Islam would develop as a religious tradition. But it is also important to understand, as far as uh, Judaism and Jews are concerned, that there is often a huge gap between the Judaism of the learned rabbinical sages and between the practice of average Jews, especially those who don't live in proximity to the big uh, centers of Jewish learning. So, for instance, we know little about the Jewish communities of Arabia that Muhammad and his followers would encounter. I hope that uh, 
this gave you a very basic idea about some aspects of political and religious life in the late antique uh, Near East. Uh, so uh, join me next time uh, as we cover the two other major religious traditions in that area, namely Christianity and Zoroastrianism. Until then, I leave you in peace. Assalamu alaikum.